Welcome to Season 2 of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. With Season 2, we're looking to make things bigger and even better. One of the added features are the podcast show notes. Here, you'd be able to find clinical trials, guidelines, as well as any relevant product information regarding the topic being discussed on the show notes. For this episode, I chat to Professor Paul Wishmeyer regarding the indirect calorimetry device from Baxter, the Q Energy Plus. Prof Wishmeyer is a perioperative physician at Duke University and has received many awards for his research. He has more than 150 peer-reviewed articles and done more than 750 presentations in his career. A special thanks goes out to the guys from Baxter for supporting this episode and for bringing this amazing device to South Africa. I have no doubt the Q Energy Plus is going to enhance our roles as dietitians in critical care. It's a very warm welcome to Professor Wishmeyer. Hey, thanks. Great to be here again and, and thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show again. I think uh, your, your episode in season one was one of our most downloaded and I think the, the listeners really did enjoy it. So thank you for that. My pleasure. It was great to, 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 to spend time that time with you and, and look forward to what we're going to talk about today as well. You yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, so the reason I touched base with you was I came across your wonderful paper in Nutrition Clinical Practice, March 2021. And it was talking along the lines of indirect kilometry. I know that the last time we chatted, uh, we spoke about the, the LEAP COVID trial. Uh, has the trial completed and the results now fully out? And, uh, you know, what sort of findings have, have been come through? So the trial's still ongoing. In fact, I, I know that your own Mullinger, who I work with, um, was was enrolling patients and doing measurements yesterday. So I, I, I know we're actively enrolling still. We're going to continue to actively enroll throughout this um, pandemic. And then the other piece of the trial that we're enrolling now more and more is we want to get control patients who don't have COVID-19, but who have um, a need to be on the ventilator for a prolonged period of time, um, like a COVID patient would, that have other illnesses, whether that be trauma or pneumonia or some other uh, injury or illness that leads to, you know, at least a reasonable time more than more than 48 hours on the ventilator. And so we want to compare, are, are the findings that we've gotten in COVID and the hyper, early hypometabolism, perhaps, or normal metabolism, the late hypermetabolism with a lot of variability, is that true in other ICU patients in modern ICU care now? And so we're in that stage of the trial. We do have three other papers, I think, that we'll be able to submit in the next week or so from it, because we have done a lot more data. We have actually got two research RDs now, Laura Nieder and Hillary Miller, who have joined our team along with, with Krista Haynes and your own. And, um, you know, we, we still have work from, from John Will and David McLeod who started with us. We have a whole group of people still working with us, but adding these two research dietitians has been essential and a huge addition. And so they've done a comparative paper from metabolic heart data to energy equation, injury equations. So, you know, Harris Benedict, Penn State, um, MSJ and, and, and Aspen suggested ca calorie by weight delivery. 
And so we're going to have a comparative paper where we were looking at the bland Ottman plots to finalize it yesterday. I think we're a few days away. And I think we're going to even bring Steve McClavin on that paper and have him look over and put, give his thoughts about how we can really make it the best it can be before we submit it in the next week or so. So that, that's one cool paper. And then we have one or two others. We have a paper that looks like it shows that the RQ in the first measurement or the first week of uh, post-intubation, at least initially, is predictive of how long they're being on the ventilator. And it's very, almost statistically significantly predictive of mortality. So having, in this case, a low RQ, an RQ of less than 0.8 in your first week or your first measurement, seems to have a adverse predictive value on your outcome. And we think this probably is some inherent metabolic properties of the patient that generate this and perhaps um, either malnutrition or, or even genetic sort of metabolic signaling that the patient has inherently that may make them challenging to recover. Um, Mervyn Singer and others have suggested this may be true that one's initial energy expenditure to stress and, and, and injury as well as um, your RQ and the way you use substrate may be very predictive to how you ultimately do. And so that's the second. And then the third is this neat paper on muscle fasciculations. We've discovered COVID has this unique, we've been doing muscle ultrasounds in all these patients sequentially. They have this unique muscle fasciculation that they get. So okay. which so is predictive of, of that outcome. Yeah, a lot of key findings coming from this, this study, which is exciting. And it's also exciting for us to know that, uh, you know, indirect colometry and all of these technologies are being incorporated. But the nice thing I liked about the paper was you're still trying to drive home practically how would you do it outside of a research setting? Because up until now, all of this was just limited to, to clinical research, but not practice. Correct. And I think that's really now what we see as the next step. I mean, so for any of you who, who aren't familiar with this new generation metabolic cart, this, this Q energy device, this device was developed, um, the, the original mission developed started with Claude Burchard and Meta Berger and Pierre Singer in Europe. And they said, this is really not okay. This is, this is unacceptable that we can't do our measurements like other parts of critical care do. Um, that we can't objectively measure nutrition. I, and I say in the paper, and I, and I say a lot in my lecture, you know, we would never deliver vasopressors without measuring the blood pressure. And we should never accept delivering nutrition without being able to measure the needs of, of the nutritional needs of our patient with a metabolic cart and also the effect on the patient um, with what the metabolic cart tells us as well, because it tells us more than just their needs. And so I think for us to be taken seriously, as seriously as the cardiovascular and other um, different parts of a presentation on rounds in the morning for nutrition to get the serious attention it needs, we have to move up to where we can personalize our delivery as well and actually provide numbers and measurements and, and data, whether that be the metabolic cart or, or muscle mass ultrasound data or whatever it may be, but, but that will really take nutrition a step forward, we, we all believe. And so, as I said, the iCalic group came together and I was fortunate to join this group later on. And they applied for a grant from ESPEN, the ESPEN uh, European Nutrition Society, Society of Professional Nutrition, gave a grant to have us as academic leaders work with industry leaders. And so we joined forces with COSMED, who's one of the better monobot cart makers in the world. They make a lot of athletic and high functioning sports carts. 
-hmm. And we set out to design a highly accurate, easy to use, simple to calibrate or actually calibrates itself, inexpensive indirect calendar. And so the Q Energy is the result of this coming together of academia, um, physicians that many of you all are gonna know and, and, and industry. And then we validated in the ICALIC trial, which is a trial that was in seven centers around the world, the Duke, we were one of them, we we're the only US center. Um, there were a number of European centers and one Asian center. And it validated wonderfully. This, this device provides accurate measurements in 10 minutes. The measurements at 10 minutes are just as accurate at 30 minutes. So it's very quick to use. Um, it's been validated by mass spec. So it's exquisitely accurate. Um, and it, it really is simple to transport. It self calibrates and warms up in a few minutes. And it's, it's, it's really what we think is the solution to the practical need of the RD or, or the nutrition team in the hospital. Okay, so if we can take a, just a step back there. Yeah. You guys formed or you were part of the ICALIC uh, committee and uh, body. What were the sort of shortfalls of the previous metabolic carts that were commercially available? Yeah, there was a number, right? I think one of the first was, was they were very difficult to calibrate and um, be confident in their accuracy. There were a number, there's, there's an, a range, quite a number of publications that have tried to look at existing metabolic carts and compare them and look for accuracy in them. And they are not consistently accurate um, at different centers um, on repeat measurements. Um, and in the paper, I really try to go into some of the technology um, that, that talk about the limitations of this. Let's just start with accuracy, I think is the first point, right? I think we've we've all said, boy, metabolic cart would be great, but none of us feel very confident that they're very accurate, plus they're difficult to calibrate, so we're not sure we're calibrating them correctly. So I think calibration and accuracy was the first piece that we really wanted to address. And so first, it had to be exquisitely accurate, but second, it had to be easy to calibrate. In fact, it has to calibrate itself because otherwise you have to have a respiratory therapist who's got unique expertise and then we're not even sure it's accurate because the calibration was really difficult to do. So we had to address the calibration and accuracy issue first. If we don't have that, we don't have any device. It doesn't matter how else it performs beyond that. If it's not accurate, if it's not calibratable, then you don't have a good device. And so that was the first piece. Okay, okay. So, so that sort of preceded the, the, the fact that all, all of these limitations then got you guys together to, to get industry involved to, to formulate this amazing device. If I could take a step back as well, you know, in your paper, you speak about, you know, pre-existing malnutrition as high as 50% before entering uh, the ICU in a lot of the patients. If yeah. there's a dietitian or a nutritional specialist that's listening to this and yep. they're working with physicians that are not really nutrition focused, what advice would you give to them to make this malnutrition more in the sphere of awareness for these physicians? Because very often, you know, I even get told by consultants that our job is to make them survive. You know, let them live first, then we'll talk about feeding. Those are some of the sentiments from even experienced medical uh, physicians. So what would you impart? You know, you know all the truth, you know all the, you know, we've had a chat even previously where we said TPM doesn't cause infection. But, you know, how would you advise a dietitian to, to, to step around that? In terms of you're asking, you know, the fact that a fair majority or potentially of our patients are malnourished when we, they come to us, you mean when yes. they start. 
Yeah, that's it's difficult, eh? It's it's um, I think the at least in the U.S. the guidelines. Um, I, I think physicians want to feel like they're following guidelines that have been published by big societies, and so I think. SCCM and Aspen did a good thing when they joined together here in the US. You have a critical care society with a nutrition society publishing guidelines. And so most of my colleagues want to at least feel like they're staying within the critical care guidelines that are published um, and the nutrition guidelines that are published too. And so I think when our dietitians can demonstrate in the chart and write into the chart that they have a diagnosis of severe malnutrition and that diagnosis carries with it this Aspen SCCM indicated guideline to start TPN within 48 hours. That's compelling for our, our critical care physicians who want to feel like they're following. I think people rarely want to feel like they're outside of guideline practice, right? Nobody wants to be the outlier. And so I think when they realize, gosh, if something happened to this patient and someone came back and looked at the chart and said, well, doctor, you, you had a patient that was clearly severely malnourished by these published consensus guidelines in these big journals, and you chose not to address that, and, and they wasted severely and ultimately got a DVT and died of a PE because they were immobile. Why did you do that? Why, why would you not follow what all the rest of your colleagues do around the world? And so it sounds simple, but I think really making the diagnosis of malnutrition formally in the chart and, and finding champions perhaps will even sign that so that's coded in the hot, you know, in our, in our country we code for it and actually go for it. Um, makes it difficult for my colleagues and, and I don't really I, um, have too much struggles now, but it took a little time to get TPN started earlier in some of these patients. We're starting our trauma patients day one, even when they're not malnourished because we think they're indicated for that. Um, like open abdomens and things. Um, but, but, I think it's hard to feel like you as a physician are outside of, of the normal scope of practice. And I think really drilling home what our guidelines say about feeding in the malnourished subject and how this patient meets that. Gosh, you sure you want to practice differently than the rest of the world? That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, thanks for that. I think uh, just, to, uh, so to, just to summarize, basically taking back the guidelines, chatting with these, these consultants and trying to let them know that, you know, as opposed to being an outlier, why not follow the evidence-based approach? Right. And be consistent with your other folks. So. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So the research tells us that, you know, most of our patients, they get less than 50% of their requirements for a prolonged period in the ICU, even sometimes more than 10 days. In your experience, what are some of the reasons that actually cause this? We know we need to feed them. We, as dietitians, we write fancy prescriptions. But yeah. where is the sort of disconnect and where do we, how do we end up with 0.6 grams per kg of protein after 12 days of the median protein intake? Yeah, you know, this is where I think it gets into why the addition of the metabolic card and other objective pieces of our practice become so important. You know, I think, um, A, yeah, we may start trophic feeding, but you know, it gets stopped for lots of things. We always say it takes an active, act of God to start tube feeding and a nurse going to lunch to stop them. Um, and so they get, they get stopped for many, many things. And so, and, and you know, when we don't have a measured target that we can put in the chart, like you can from a metabolic cart that says this patient's resting energy needs, and that assumes they're completely resting, um, are let's say 1500. And if we only feed 500, 
if we don't have something objective to, to set that target, although I, I would I would advocate an RD set target is, is often very good, but then what you need is you need a deficit, right? So every, every day on rounds, we talk about I's and O's. So today the patient was a liter and a half up in fluid and they've got lung injury and everybody's like, oh, that's bad. We gotta get the diuretic out or we gotta turn the fluids down or we gotta do something. If every day on rounds, the RD reported, well, today, the, the, the calculated needs and our, the, the RD intuition calculation, I would advocate is better than the, the strict equation calculation because RDs don't just take the strict results of equations typically, I, I'm, at least in my experience. They use their intuition to it. But let's say the RD intuition calculated is 1500. And today, the, and yesterday the patient got 500 and now we have a calorie deficit of, calorie deficit of 1000. And then tomorrow the same thing happened. Now we have a calorie deficit of 2000. Hearing that as a physician, I will tell you, someone who in the last, especially a few months has been rounding a lot, hearing deficits like that, oh, they eat at you because oh. we want to be, we, we like to fix things. We're fixers, right? Intensive care doctors are fixers. And so when you're telling me it's broken and it's getting more broken, oh yeah, that's, that means I'm doing something wrong. I'm failing. Mm -hmm. So I think pe you know, people who do this really well are Meta Burger, right? She has this real neat system, an electronic medical record that tracks protein deficit and calorie deficit and also the metabolic cart measurements that go with that. So now you've taken it a step further. Now you've got a machine telling the doctor the, the need is 1500 and we're only feeding 500. And now you're objectively defi in deficit. Um, that, that gets to people. That leads to them saying, Jesus, how, what, we'll fix that. Get them fed better, do something. I don't wanna hear that number anymore. It hurts, hurts my ears. It hurts my ears to hear I'm doing something poorly and, and this, is, this is not okay. Mm. It works. It's hard to do. I have trouble with it at Duke. We, we, we have all kinds of troubles with our EHR trying to get everything to work together to create those, to spit those numbers out. Um, but I can tell you there are institutions that do it really well. And there are institutions around the world. I've heard, I've heard RDs in third world countries be better at spitting out the calorie deficit and the protein deficits than I can get in the US with the fanciest EMR there is. Because it, it, it takes some work on the RD part to get those numbers, right? So you have to calculate them every day with the nurses and what, what went in and what, what your estimates are and then what your deficits are. But there are plenty of EMRs that do it themselves that will calculate them for you. And then there's these neat programs that Elizabeth Davala has written one that she does in Excel, by the way. And then Meta Berger has the best one I've ever seen, which she does within her computer's electronic medical record that, that shows graphs of this stuff in different colored lines on the same page all the vital signs are on. Wow. And so reporting calorie and protein deficit on rounds every day in the ICU should be a number one goal for RDs around the world because it's motivating. Because then you can start to break out the Bartlett data and things that say that patients who generate 10,000 kcal deficits or greater have this enormous, as I remember the data, it's been, you know, it's old data from the 80s, um, you know, 60, 70% mortality. We know calorie deficit equals mortality. And that's not the only paper, but there's a, obviously the Bartlett paper from Michigan is a seminal paper in that area. Um, that's compelling. Nobody wants to hear these numbers. It makes it sound like they're failing at their job, but we don't usually tell them. Yeah, and, I think, you know, with your paper, uh, the one thing that, that comes through is this device is going to be a means for nutrition care in the ICU to get the respect or the attention it, it requires. Because prior to this, this was just a number in the sky, a, a thumb suck from a dietitian, and nobody was actually keeping a scorecard of how far behind we are. 
And, and now we can do that. And, 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 and I think before even when we had metabolic hearts, the physicians questioned the accuracy. And I just want to touch Omi on just, you asked about barriers. And I think a few other barriers that made metabolic hearts hard to use and why maybe even people that are listening still might be hesitant to use them is some of the other obstacles I think that we've tried to take away. You know, I told you it had to be accurate, it had to be calibrated. But the other problem with metabolic hearts, right, is the RDs and the ICU team doesn't have much time in the day. And these devices, I used to do them in the Bernie all the time in, in Colorado, they take 60 minutes to set up by usually one or two respiratory therapists that's never available. Yeah, wow. we had to do away with that. This device takes 10 minutes to set up, 10 to 15 minutes to set up. And there's already an RD driven team, Ashley Rolf, um, at a hospital in Chicago for all you RDs out there that, that not sure that can happen. She already has a running RD metabolic cart team. We're setting one up at Duke too. We're probably still a few weeks away, but, um, but she has one running because the RD can do this whole thing. And I, as I understand it, she's also gotten permission to do the hookups with the ventilator, the physical, the, the uh, respiratory therapists are going to teach her RDs on that team how to do it. And unless it's a really sick, unstable patient, it sounds like they're going to let them do everything at the ventilator without them even present. I can imagine us at Duke having them present because they're on our rounds all the time. They're always available to us. Being there for two minutes when they hook up, two minutes when they disconnect and the RD does everything else. It's that simple to set up. And it reads that quickly. It reads in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So I think that was the first limitation we had to overcome because we need a, this needs to be run by RDs, right? This, the, there's not some magical physician in the sky that's gonna appear that's gonna do this. But we, we don't have a new specialty to do this. We need RDs to do this because they're the ones that really have the expertise to interpret it. And then the other thing is this thing has to be small, has to be easily transportable, which it's, it is, it's like this big, it's very light. Um, and then a wide range of our patients have to be able to get it. And so this cart will measure up to 70% now, which I can tell you has been huge in COVID because we wouldn't have half the measurements we had if we couldn't measure up to an FIO2 of 70% accurately because a lot of our patients are over 60%. It measures peeps up to 16, at least in our hands it does. And maybe you could go higher, we just haven't done that. But so again, you have to have this range of flexibility that most of your patients can be measured by it. And the last thing I'm gonna say, because we just wrote, a, I just wrote a paper with Elizabeth Devale that's gonna be in current opinion and critical care in a month or two, where we talked about all the latest data for the new innovations in how you use metabolic carts. And one of the limitations has been, there's this perception you can't do it on CRT. That perception is wrong. There's, there's some great research going on with Arthur Van Zanten's group and with some others in Europe where, uh, and Elizabeth group, uh, Diwali's group as well, where they have been able to show that the effect of doing a metabolic cart on CRT has maybe a 30 to 40 calorie kcal per day effect on the measured number. So it's trivial. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. So um, you can do metabolic carts on CRT patients. It's not going to inaccurate, make your data inaccurate. Okay, so, so Paul, if we could just recap there, it was, it can do FIO2 up to 70%? Correct. Uh, you said the, the PEP was 16? Yeah, we, we have found the device to lead to steady state accurate measurements up to a PEEP of 16. It might be higher, but at least we can do it at 16. Okay, and then for your renal replacement patients, is there any specific guidance on how to do the measurement or time delays or anything? No, no. And we have not full on started doing that, but I can tell you we did a few comparisons before I've I saw this data from the European groups. 
Um, and we would see, we'd get the exact same number. Okay. We do it on CRT and then we wait an hour and we do it off CRT. Or sometimes we wait five minutes and we do it off CRT, same number. Okay. Now, now the data would say that that's, 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 you know, experience talk. That's just experiential talk, that, um, experience talking. But, but, but data, the data would say the difference from these published papers, which we're going to reference in this new paper. I can't wait for this new paper to come out with Elizabeth. She did a great job of summarizing this stuff with, with one of the physicians Jupe she works with. 30 to 40 calories. That's the difference it makes. It's trivial. Wow. So that's that's pretty compelling, right? And you can do it on ECMO. You know, both she and a German group have shown there is a way, her, her way used two devices, by the way, so it's tough, but um, that you can do it on ECMO. We've been trying, we're, we're not as good at it as she is yet, um, but but she and this German group have shown you can do it on ECMO and it takes some some work to do that, but, but that is out there as well. Okay, so if I could ask now, who is the patient that you would not use the indirect kilometer monitor pool. Because there are still people, right, that we can't get around and we'll probably never get around some of the challenges. So patients with air leaks in their chest, so chest tubes, right? So now you're, if you can't get all the, the flow that, that goes into the patient back from the patient, if there's a hole in the circuit, of, it has to be a closed circuit going in from in and from into the, the metabolic cart to measure, um, it's not accurate. And so you're, you're really gonna, you're gonna have trouble with patients who have air leaks. Um, so the chest tube problem is still the chest tube problem. And then, you know, when you get to the higher FO2s, if you're on, you know, 80% and above, especially, it's not validated as accurate. The, the vast spec numbers, I mean, we tried, the, the company tried, the, the, the numbers get er, er, more erratic. So the, the very high FO2 patients, so the limit of leap COVID is, when they're on 80% and above, even 75% and above, we can't really go there um, because the data, the, the device hasn't, hasn't been able to get accurate there yet. And then, you know, the, the really high PEEP unstable patient where if you unhook that circuit, you're risking the patient, of course, then, then it's just, it's not safe to do. And so you just can't go there. Um, so I think, you know, those are some of the main patients that I would say um, is key. Some quick guidelines, there's a table, there's a couple tables. One of the tables talks about the comparison of the old to the new metabolic carts and, and what they function at in this paper. Table one does that. Table two says when you should and shouldn't use it. Um, and real quickly, just to tell you what those are, I think one is the patient not being agitated and being sedated appropriately um, is important. If you're changing sedation, if you've got a patient who's trying to crawl out of the bed because you haven't gotten them there, um, th that, that's a patient who's not ready to be measured. Now, having a neuromuscular blockade, a paralytic, is not going to affect your measurements very much. So Arthur Van Zanten did a study where he paralyzed people, uh, or he did a measurement with a metabolic cart before paralysis, and then he did a neuromuscular blocker. The difference is only 6%. So you don't need to account for the fact that the patient is, is paralyzed or on neuromuscular blockers in your, in your, what you're going to feed because the amount it affects it is tiny. And we found that too. We found very little effect of that in our COVID patients. Um, you know, you don't want a patient who's got their temperature changing actively or is their acid base settings changing actively. So if they're rapidly getting febrile or rapidly defervescing by more than a milligram centigrade or more than one degree centigrade, sorry, one degree centigrade in an hour, especially going up, that's not the patient you want to measure. 
Now, COVID patients are challenging because sometimes they're 38, 5, 39 degrees all day long. And so then if, if they say, if they hold their temperature for an hour right there, I measure them. And they're always higher, of course. But, you know, and this is a great question. I, and I don't know the answer. And I don't know if anyone does. But I feel like we need, we need to account for those, those caloric losses and measure those. Because the patient's clearly, you know, using energy to deal with that fever. And, and it increases resting metabolic rate, 500 to 1,000 calories a day if they're febrile for prolonged periods, we found. And so I account for those. I don't try to measure them when they're changing dramatically, but if, if they're febrile more than 50% of the day, and I can find a period where they're febrile for an hour and I can't find another window to measure them and I'll measure them in that. And then we'll caveat that in the chart. Um, you know, the FIO2 thing, the PEEP thing, they can't have air leaks. The CRT thing, you're gonna see that I wrote that in the table, but in this next paper, I, now that I see the data better, and some of this comes from the user's manual, so I can't go too far outside the user's manual, but I gotta tell you the CRT thing is not relevant from what I can tell in the literature now. And then, um, you know, you don't wanna do it right after they've had a procedure. But other than that, no limitations. It is rare that we can't measure somebody, even with COVID, even who's prone on the metabolic cart. Okay. The only real hard, the only real hard and fast blockade to you was that chest tube, or or a high FiO two, or a chest tube. Okay, so when I chatted to some of the intensivists I work with, uh, they they previously while they were in the state sector worked with the ventilator that had the, the component onto there. Yeah, the G. Yeah. Yeah, and and one of the things though, they they were concerned or they asked was you know for that specific uh, measurement. They needed to make sure that the patient wasn't turned and there were so many parameters that had to be excluded so the test could be done. So they found themselves measuring these patients at a random hour of like midnight when there was nobody else in the unit but just the nurse. And yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how, is it, how is this device practically working out for you guys? Do you have a set routine or a schedule? That's an excellent question. That's an outstanding question, actually. Um, yeah, really good Omi question. Uh, that's a really good one. We, we, we do, we, 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 the way we do it is, is, you know, right now we have Euron Mullinger, who's our physiologist, who's doing the leap COVID studies um, and, and on all of our studies right now until we get our RD team up. He'll call ahead to the nurse and he'll say, and he, or he'll go on rounds and, and check in with the team. Um, and he'll say, you know, what time today do you think is a good time when you'll sort of be done with your, stuff in your procedures for this patient to be measured. And the nurse or the team will say, oh, three o'clock or one o'clock, or, you know, you know we're, we're gonna do a bronch this morning or we're gonna unprone at 10 a.m. So you don't wanna do it then. Or we're gonna do a bronch at noon, you don't wanna do it then. Or whatever that thing may be, or they're going to the OR. And then you think you know have to you wait for a while and then come back. So so we like you said. So the interesting thing about and that GE, GE device is really neat. I, you know there, there is a ventilator right that's built into the GE um, one of the GE ventilators. We tried to get those ventilators at Duke actually, and, and unfortunately th those ventilators cost a little more with those metabolic heart devices in them. And so the, the Duke as a whole, my, my my desire for the nutrition data didn't win out over the desire to save the money, but um, <laughs> but. but <laughs> which was too bad because they're neat. You know, they're neat because they provide 24 hours of measurement. I had a ventilator and metabolic cart connection like that as, as a resident in University of Chicago in our burn unit and in our pediatric ICU where I could measure kids' total energy expenditure through the day. And I used to not care that they were getting all their procedures done because I thought 
What's awesome about this device is it gives you total energy expenditure. And so as long as the, the measurements look like they were reasonable, um, I said, I don't care if we measured them while they were undergoing procedures or all these other things. I like to look at the total energy expenditure of the patient because that's actually what they were using. And so I would feed to that sometimes, especially in burn kid. Um, and so I kind of thought that was neat. So I didn't worry about all those other extraneous factors unless the data looked inaccurate in terms of its ability to measure, which sometimes during procedures and movements, the, the data is inaccurate. I would take that out. But otherwise, I thought that was kind of interesting to have that data. But, but I think with this device, because it's so portable, because it calibrates so rapidly, and it's so easy to hook up and, and unhook, and it can measure in 10 minutes, we just talk to the nursing teams and to the physician teams, and we say, when's the best time today? And we're going to come by and do it. And it's a really big deal in the COVID rooms, right? Because in the COVID rooms, it takes you know, 15, 20 minutes to get in the room and 20, 30 minutes to clean everything and get out of the room. So it's a pretty big commitment of time in the COVID-19 rooms. In a non-COVID-19 room now, I mean, Jerome and the teams think this is a chip shot, right? I can get in and out of there in 15, 20 minutes. Um, but in the COVID room, it's a commitment of time. And so we do plan ahead with the nursing teams. Okay. And just that you mentioned COVID, uh, are you anticipating more ICU populations that haven't been studied previously extensively, you know, over that longitudinal period, are you anticipating more ICU populations non-COVID to behave in similar sort of uh, hypermetabolic states, even in week three and onwards? Yes, I, I fear. Now, I don't know if, you know, so we're gonna show data in this, in this equation piece that our, our research RDs, Laura and Hillary did, they go all the way out to week seven. We have COVID data now to week seven measurements, not a ton of measurements, but we have some. And they look a lot like week three, by the way, which is kind of bothersome. Um, so, but as I was saying to the residents the other day on rounds, COVID ARDS and COVID organ injury reminds me of the lung injury and the length of the critical illness that I used to see in the 90s and early 2000s as a resident and fellow and new attending, where people would get ARDS and they would remain on the vent for weeks. And we would talk about things like surfactant and late steroids and liquid ventilation and all these crazy things that never came to be because ultimately when like some of the ARDSnet low tidal volume and all the ARDSnet data came out and we got really good at managing ARDS, people didn't do that anymore. Nobody stayed sick for weeks and weeks and weeks with ARDS. Not anymore they don't, but with COVID they do. Once you put a breathing tube into an older COVID patient, I would say 80% of the time you've, you've invested three to seven to 12 weeks of their life in, the, in what's gonna happen. Now, maybe they'll end up trachin on the vent for a good punch of those weeks, but they stay sick for a long time. The ARDS does not relent and it's devastating to watch. It is just crippling for me as an attending to watch people languish and die because I can't make their ARDS and I can't auctionate them. Right. And so I'm in the ICU that doesn't get the ECMO patients. So the young ECMO patients go to our medical ICU. So what I, I'm largely caring for the elderly or outside the limits of ECMO, which at Duke is almost nobody. I will tell you, we'll do ECMO in almost anyone. We're, we're a big ECMO center. Um, but, but I'm taking care of the 70, the 80 year old, the, the 72 year old who's got two cancers and, 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 and all kinds of comorbidities that preclude ECMO. And so I'm watching people that would honestly be on ECMO. And, I, and I'm trying to manage their ARDS and, 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 and I don't have anything to offer. I, I almost gave surfactant the other day, which I haven't thought about in 25 years. 
probably 20 years, I don't know, a long time, because John Marshall in Canada did a small study with that. Um, and it looked, it hinted that it might work. It's, it's difficult. So I think to get to your question of is, is, is the new populations that we study are gonna be different than the old COVID or the, or the COVID populations that we're studying. I think there are people out there that are gonna remain hypermetabolic for periods of time. But what's different about COVID is this disease sticks and lasts for a long time. And these people stay sick for a really long time, much longer than most ICU diseases. We figured them out, other ICU diseases. We don't, our patients usually don't go like this. This is like what I saw as, as a young person. But now we're seeing it again. And so I think there won't be nearly as many that have the late hypermetabolism. Now that said, Peter Collins in Australia, right? And I don't know if I've seen this data in print yet, but we presented Espen together and he showed that it took 52 kcals per kilo per day to put muscle mass, new muscle onto a post-ICU survivor after they left the hospital. So that's 55. That's five, 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 two. Five, five, two. Five, two. That's five, two. calories. 50 kcals per day, which, you know, when I give my lectures and talk about my own experience with recovering from critical illness and surgery, that's how much, that, that, that pushes how much I have to eat. And I just thought I was the crazy one. No, no, he's actually looked at people and you feed them in the 40K cal per kilo range, they maintain their weight, they don't lose more, but they don't gain. Sure. I mean, it, I'm dying for him to publish this data because it really says what the Minnesota starvation trial said about even healthy folks who had to be refed after massive weight loss, they needed enormous numbers of calories, um, five, 6,000 calories. Um, and who's eating that? So what, it be, what, what, what we are super fascinated to begin to get is what are the resting metabolic rates of these patients? And then, you know, I don't, they're not gonna be that high, I don't think, but, but are they remaining elevated for weeks, two months after ICU? Maybe they're not, maybe they're, I don't know. I know Emma um, is doing some of this work in Australia, uh, Emma Ridley. And so I'm curious what she sees too, but we want it, we're, we're doing it too, but, uh, but, but I can tell you in the COVID patient, they remain 28, 30 kcal per kilo needs hypermetabolic above equations out to seven weeks. The question will be if you're an ICU patient that's no longer critically ill at seven weeks because of other diseases don't go that long, what will we see? Yeah. Once they're out of the ICU, will that persist or will that go down? So, so we, I've also seen that with, the, with this new device, there is an option to measure the non-ventilated patients. Have you had any experience with that? We have, we have. So, so there are some, some great things about it and some challenging things about it. The great thing is um, you can do it by hood or by mask. Um, and if you're not on supplemental oxygen, it seems to work great. Um, interestingly, I found patients like the mask more than the hood, which I was surprised yeah. by. I don't, but I would love a mask on my face, but they seem to like the, the masks. Um, the hood makes them feel claustrophobic, which is fascinating. The mask might me, make, make me feel claustrophobic, but it's interesting to watch. Um, it works really well in those situations. And then the mask is probably more accurate if I had to tell you what I've observed because it's a better seal. Um, now the limitation. So a quick primer on how metabolic carts work or like different kinds. There are metabolic carts that um, average the, the VO2 and VCO2 and uh, sample the gas over like 30 second intervals. And that's what this new one is. So this new one is got, and I'm, and, you know, and the, and the Cosmin folks may, may not like how I describe that, but that's how I understand it is, is this samples over time and it allows this really outstanding accuracy and gas mixing to occur and things. And, and so 
The problem with that is if you're on supplemental oxygen, if you're on two liters of nasal cannula oxygen, the device can't work with that. It doesn't know what the FiO2 is. So this, the new Q-Energy device needs to know what the FiO2 going to the patient is. So if you're on a ventilator, it can measure that right from the ventilator's um, delivered uh, inhalation line. There's a, there's a little connection that can measure it directly from what the ventilator and the ventilator is very accurate, right? So the, the, the device knows exactly what the FiO2 is. If you're on room air, the device knows exactly what the FiO2 is as well because it's room air and it doesn't change. If you're on two liters of nasal cannula and you're underneath a hood, the device has no idea it's gonna change. It's gonna vary and, it, and, it's, and it's not precise. And so when the machine doesn't know what the actual FiO2 is consistently, it, it's, it's not accurate. Now there are breath to breath metabolic cart devices that are largely built for athletes. Um, like the Cosmed Quark is one of them. We're using that one. That's why I know about it. And there's new Bluetooth ones that you just put a mask on and Bluetooth to a computer way over here that we're also using for our IC rehab studies um, and our pre-transplant rehab studies. Did somebody talk about budget at you. <laughs> now when it comes to cardiac, when it comes to transplant, and I will tell you, Jerome, Jerome Mollinger is the master of working with these companies and then they give them to him. Okay, like, okay. People are giving us to this to do research yeah. because they want, they want to get their devices out there as medical devices, right? Or, or could be used as to help patients. So they're giving them to I'm us. Just so. pulling your leg. <laughs> no, no, it's a great question, right? But I'm just telling you, there's these cool devices that exist that do like anything you want. But anyway, um, and actually these Bluetooth masks are really cheap. They're like a couple thousand dollars. Okay. Um, that may be a future for, and they're super comfortable with the patient. They're not connected to anything. It just, you, could, you could go for a run down the street with them and, and it would measure accurately. Wow. Give you that sense. Yeah, they're amazing. Anyway, um, they're, called, they're called the VO2 master, I think is, is their name. But anyway, they're really neat. Um, but, but anyway, they're breath to breath calorimeter devices. So they can work with nasal cannula because they actually measure what's coming into the mask or hood and they can deal with that. Mm -hmm. And so for the patient who's, so this is where the COVID, post-COVID patients, tricky, they're almost all on oxygen, right? Yeah. At least for a little while. So the Q-Energy to this point, we're working, and I know they're working on it, but they can't, you can't measure that patient with the Q-Energy. And so we've had to go to this, this cork device or this Bluetooth device um, to begin to get data from those patients. And so that, that is where the post-ICU setting becomes a little more challenging um, using just the one device. But again, if they're on room air, it's not a problem. So COVID, COVID is the most challenging because most of the COVID patients are, are on some oxygen and that has limited our ability to get post-ICU measures some. Okay, if I could ask you, can you just touch on how big a problem is this underfeeding and overfeeding and this magical number of around about 70%. And you know, we, we know that when you get above the 100, there's a problem below the 70, there's also an equal problem. So, you know, what, what does the research tell us? So, you know, I think Pierre Singer's paper um, recently was, was that large over a thousand patient study where they looked at patients who were fed 70, they were fed different percentages of metabolic cart measured values. It's that U-shaped graph that's in the Pierre Singer paper that you'll see us show slides of all the time recently. Uh, and it's pretty interesting, right? They, they had, the average length of stay on that patient group was five to seven days. So 
there are measurements to go later, of course, too, but, but it's, it's largely a group that was measured over that first week. And, and what they found was, again, you can probably see the curve in your mind, was that the best survival was found at 70% of measured resting energy expenditure. And, and so that's really interesting. And, and then what it showed was is mortality went up precipitously, really steeply, if you got below 70%. So you definitely want to want to be below 70%. And then the other interesting thing was, as you got above about 85%, especially over 100%, mortality creeped back up again. And mortality definitely was going up over 100%. So, you know, somewhere between 70 and 100% you still sort of had a, a, a lower mortality than you did either one of those other two extremes. So you don't wanna be at either one of those other two extremes. So underfeeding is worse, but overfeeding is bad and needs to be avoided at all costs as well. And some, so somewhere between 70 and 100% appears to be more reasonable, but the best data was between 70 to 80%. And that's really interesting. Uh, and that's for calories, but not protein, because the protein, the mortality from the protein delivery went straight line down pretty much past 1.3 grams per kilo per day. And they didn't have enough data points beyond 1.3 because that was their target. So, you know, you know, overfeeding is bad because it leads to probably some immune impairments. It leads to, you know, Greg Vandenberg's group would, would say it impairs autophagy probably in a way that we, we don't, we don't totally understand the relevance of autophagy in humans yet, but, but um you know, there are risks to overfeeding that we've been talking about for many, many years that they're real. And so you don't want to be overfeeding and, and you definitely don't want to be underfeeding. I mean, it's clear that the mortality skyrockets when you're below 70%. And so, you know, I think that's just catabolism and, 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 and immune dysfunction, right? So when anybody comes at me and says, you know, this patient is septic, so let's not start TPN. And, and you know, they may have an infection um, so let's not start TPN. I see you, you realize it's been 10 days and their immune cells have none of the substrate they need to function and their patients initially probably essentially immune senescent, immune dysfunctioned. And so you're right, they're going to keep getting infections if you don't give them TPN or if you don't feed them because their immune cells have ceased to function and the patient will continue to get worse. So I said, I can assure you that it's just as safe to give saline through that central line as it's TPN through that central line. But if you don't give it, you'll continue to get infections. Your only hope for this patient to not get an infection is to give the TPN. Because otherwise, there's no way their immune system is going to be able to sustain its ability to surveil the body and, and fight. Okay. And could you just touch on the ramping of the protein and after the, the acute phase, the late acute phase, you know, where, where you see the protein and calories go. Yeah, I think, I think Arthur Van Zandt's paper where, where he showed that, you know, there was this initial uh, period in the first two to three days where giving more than 0.8 to one gram per kilo per day of protein appeared to associate with an increased risk of mortality in a fairly large number of patients. It's an observational trial, but it struck me. It made sense to me. Um, and, and I think if you go with, with there being sort of any clinical relevance, and there probably is to Gree Vandenberg's findings of autophagy in those first few days, um, I think ramping your protein starting at 0.8 for the first, you know, two days, maybe 0.8 to one makes a lot of sense. And we're doing that. And I, I think 
it, it makes sense physiologically. It makes sense with the outcome data that, that Arthur's shown. Now that said, patients who get fed at 0.8 or less for their whole stay have the worst survival in that large study and that not unexpected. But patients who get fed than more than 1.2 grams per kilo per day for the whole stay, including those first two days, although have better survival than the 0.8 group, they don't have nearly as good a survival as the 0.8 for the first two to three days, 0.8 to one, and then above 1.2 after day three. That group did the best, right? And so, and, and you know, I've, I've heard people that it was at Espen a few years ago, Arthur was being criticized for that saying, well, maybe it's just biasing the patients who maybe are easier or harder to feed. And Arthur rightfully said, well, but the reality is the patients who are the easiest to feed that you think would be the least sick and do the best are that group that got 1.2 the whole time. Because if you can get to goal two feeding in somebody, it probably means they're not as sick as somebody who you can't. But yet they didn't do as well as the patients who got 0.8 to one those first few days. So the patients that were ramped versus even the patients who were probably less sick and easier to feed did better. Did better, wow. Yeah. So. I'm a believer in that initial first few day ramp of protein. We're not talking about the first week. We're talking about the first 48 to 72 hours. Again, we as humans, you know, we, when the tiger bit us or the, or the, or the, you know, the surgeon hit us or the, the car hit us, we weren't meant to eat a whole lot probably in that first 48 to 72 hours. We probably were meant to get something because that's how you maintain your gut microbiome and that's how you maintain your gut barrier and that's how you sustain vagal nerve signaling to reduce inflammation systemically. Um, but you probably weren't meant to eat to goal. And so, you know, some trophic feed that gets protein in around 0.8 is probably evolutionarily perfect to do all the non-nutritional valuable things of nutrition and maintain some, you know, muscle breakdown parameters without, you know, really wrapping it up where maybe you're overwhelming some of our endogenous survival mechanisms. Okay, so if I misunderstand you correctly, day four to hundred percent. The next week thereafter, keep at hundred percent, and then the time thereafter at hundred and fifty percent. Or is that too much? Right. So yeah, you're getting this figure. So figure one in the paper is a figure that um, yeah. So so for all of you, th this paper and all of you, I want you to know it, um, I'm happy to share this paper with you if you just email me or reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram or or, or LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever social media site you like. Um, or you can email me at paul, P-A-U-L dot Wishmeyer, W-I-S-C-H-M-E-Y-E-R at duke.edu. We're talking about figures and tables that are in this new paper, but there's a figure that basically is an, ex it's, it's an adaption of a figure that Arthur Van Zandt, Elizabeth Diwali and I published in a nutrition feeding paper in critical care that we published at the end of 2019. So I've taken this, this figure and I've adapted it for the use of indirect optometry. And, and that's what you're only citing. And so, yeah, so one of the suggestions we make is, is in the post-ICU phase, so there's, there's feeding suggestions and metabolic heart use suggestions across the different days and phases of critical illness in this figure. Um, and, and so uh, we, we suggest 150% of IC in the post-ICU phase. And a number of reasons that to be true. One, we know that at least from Peter Collins and others work, you need to have more calories going in to become anabolic in that late phase. The other thing is hopefully the patient's doing a lot more rehab. And so they're actually, you know, remember that that device is only measuring resting energy expenditure. And that's the energy when you're not moving at all. Um, and so you need to put an, a, a, calibra or a, 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 a calibration factor onto the measured resting energy expenditure to account for activity and other things. And so, 
and again, we're guesstimating at 150% because we want to make sure that people take their calories up and then their protein up, um, you know, up protein up to two grams per kilo. I don't know that we can say we have data for more than that. Um, but we want to make sure that people are getting the substrate they need to begin to recover and gain muscle mass and become anabolic. Now, clearly, I think folks like me who've worked in burn units and who watched ICU patients a long time think that other things are going to be needed, like anabolic steroids, like testosterone, like sandalone, and potentially propranolol to cut catabolism. Clonidine may play a role in that too. You know, Greet Vandenberg showed it after one of her large trials that five-year survival was improved by really one factor that happened during the ICU stay, and that was someone getting clonidine. It's an observational association trial, but it was a big trial. And she looked at people who live five years and what factors happened in the ICU that led them to leave five years. Getting clonidine was one of those factors. Again, another anti-catabolic, anti-adrenergic kind of sort of drug that might play an interesting role in our metabolic rates as well. But propranolol we know improves anabolic use of substrate as do um, anabolic steroids like, like oxandrolone. But then, you know, in the rehab setting beyond that, it, it may be even higher. So the post-ICU phase actually we say 125% while they're in the hospital still, that's the post-ICU phase. But then we say 150% of intercalometry when they're in the rehab phase, when they're actually actively rehabbing, usually outside the hospital or within a rehab facility inside the hospital. Okay. And so I think, yeah, we're trying to account for that um, over time. Okay. And then just back to the, the device that you have, in terms of the consumables, I know you're in a research center, so, you know, cost, you know, not always something that you'll have to take into consideration for that individual patient, but are the consumables, would you say they're relatively expensive or is it something that's accessible on it? Because you're going to go through, what are the consumables? Yeah, so the, the main consumable is just the tubing. So what, what makes this a nice device is, is all the tubing is single use tubing. So basically you've got the box and then for each patient you use a new set of tubing. And so that's why you don't have to do this, some sort of extensive sterilization process or cleaning process because the tubing has filters in it and it's single use per patient. And so it's really easy. You hook the tubing in, go do your patient, take the tubing off, and you're ready to do your next patient. Um, I don't know the precise cost of the tubing. My sense is it's relatively inexpensive. Um, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's probably, you know, in the, in the range of some U US dollars, probably less than 20, but I don't know that. Um, that would be a great question for me to ask because I think you won't be the first to ask me this. Um, but it's relatively inexpensive. It's just this plastic tubing set. It's like, it looks like ventilator tubing kind of. Okay. Um, so my hunch is it isn't too expensive, but don't quote me on that because I don't know the actual number. I, I, I think it's 20 or $30, but I don't know that for sure. Okay. So where we at now currently in South Africa is the product is, is now being going to be marketed by Baxter and when I've spoken to the, the local affiliate, they're at the stage now where they're speaking with funders to mm -hmm. understand how will this reimbursement work for this for this device or for the measurement, who would actually bill for it, especially in the private sector, you know, would it be a, an RD or would it be an anesthetist or, you know, who exactly bills for it and how do we offer the service in the ICU because we know that we need it. If you were speaking, so on the podcast, we have not just dietitians, but a lot of people from industry, even with interest in nutrition that listen, if you were speaking yeah. to somebody as a funder, 
Yeah. What did you tell them as to why they've got to get this into their formulary and got to get it for their patients in the ICU? So I think the first thing I would say to them is, is one is, again, in every other aspect of critical care medicine or of any kind of medicine, we don't deliver critical therapies that when given too much or too little of can cause harm without measuring if we're giving the right amount. So for patient safety, which I think it should be the overriding goal of all of our care, um, we need to give good patient care, but we even more so have to give safe patient care. And if we aren't giving safe patient care, then why are we doing this? How can we feel good about what we do and how can we sleep at night? And to give safe patient care, again, I'm gonna go back to the vasopressor analogy, you wouldn't give norepinephrine, epinephrine or dopamine without measuring the effect of this drug you're giving, this intervention you're giving, because you can cause harm. It wouldn't be safe. We just wouldn't do it. Um, nutrition is, is not that much different, right? That U-shaped curve that Pierre Singer draws in that thousand plus patient study shows that when you're overfeeding, you're, you're contributing to mortality. When you're underfeeding, you're contributing to mortality. It's not safe. You can cause harm by too much. You can cause harm by too little. That requires, that demands measurement. So patient safety is number one, right? And we can't say that we're safe right now, as much as that hurts me to say that, and pains RDs probably all over the country and all over the world to say that, but we, but none of us can say for sure that we're in the range the patient needs to be. Because we know, as Steve McClave showed us, our equations are underestimated a third of the time, they're overestimating a third of the time, and they're perhaps right a third of the time, which is, you know, like a slot machine in Las Vegas where, you know, it's a rolling a three-sided die, your odds of being wrong are much greater than your odds of being right. So that to me isn't safe patient care. Okay. So that's, that's I think, where I start. Now, second, there was just a paper published and it's included in this new current opinion critical care, and I'll send you that paper when it comes out, but in this new current opinion critical care review, there was just a review in critical care, a meta-analysis of metabolic cart guided feeding studies. And that meta-analysis in almost a thousand patients, I think eight or nine studies, showed a significant, statistically significant reduction in mortality in patients that had metabolic carts used to guide their nutrition care. There wasn't enough. One. Yeah, that's a big one, right? So now you've got mortality data, not, not in a single study um, per se, but in a large number of studies. And so now you've got that clinical outcome driver. Now that's, there wasn't enough data and enough data collected in each of those trials to say that it changed other outcomes like, like length of stay or infections yet. But I'm not sure those matter very much if, if mortality and patient safety are already on the table as a reason we need this device. So, because the hospital administrator might even say, you, you know, if the patients, you know, the, that really, I think that has this fundamental. I mean, I think we have to be fundamentally focused on, on safety and, and survival of our patients before those others. So then I, mean, I think the other piece um, is, is and every country is gonna be different, but I know in the US we can code and bill for these services. So, you know, the, the codes that go along with them don't bring in a lot of money, but they should bring in enough money we hope to break us even. And so we are hoping that it, Ultimately, this should be a cost negative, or I mean a cost neutral um, investment for the hospital by the time we're done. 
And we're still working that out. I can't give you the hard data for that, but I know about what it reimburses in the US. I've looked at it for years. Um, and I think it should cover the consumables and a couple other things. And there also may be a professional fee for interpretation of the actual data. That, that probably is a little bit larger fee and we have to figure that out, but there actually is a fee and um, you know, it's a procedure. And so I, I'm betting in every country, there's a procedural related code for it in some way, because it actually is something you're doing to the patient and that usually reimburses um, to provide some recompensation to the institution. And so I think there is a financial path that can be evolved. And I think that's a big part. You know, there's, there's many parties that need to buy in, whether it's a hospital group, the funders, or even just the, the medical team themselves. But there's no doubt that there's a growing body of evidence from people like yourself that's showing the benefit to this device and to this kind of measurements in the ICU. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think, um, I'm just gonna tell you the reference real quick on that uh, metabolic heart meta-analysis because it wasn't one I had seen before I wrote this paper. I wrote this paper overnight in the ICU the other night. Um, and uh, so it was interesting, I learned a lot. Um, I have to get to the references. Uh, hold on, where'd they go? So I'm gonna tell you real quick. It's, uh, oh no, it has to be after that. It may take me a second to find, let me find the right thing. But but I think, but I can provide the reference to you later and you can include it in the, in the podcast notes no, maybe. Yeah. But, but I think that, um, the, I, I think the key is though patient safety and I think really showing that the data, there's real risk if we over or under feed and the only way we're going to do it accurately is with resting energy expenditure uh, that's measured. And then I think there's, there is some clinical outcome data and we need more. I mean, I think we all know we need more research in this area. We need more studies. You know, we have some studies planned at Duke where we're going to start doing all of our feeding trials. Like we have an early, we have some early PN trials in trauma and other settings in the ICU. We're going to start PN, parental nutrition in day two and or day two or three. But we're going to do that throughout the hospitalization guided by metabolic heart. So I think in the future, clinical trials are no longer going to be acceptable in nutrition to be done without measured energy expenditure guiding the trial. You can't just go in and say, we're going to do trophic feeds and we're going to do full feeds to 25 kcals per kilo. That, that, that should not get funded anymore. That's not acceptable because that's, that's not good science, right? Um, if we're not measuring what our patients' needs are throughout the least, at least the auspices of a clinical trial, now that we have these devices available, we're not doing cutting edge science. And so all the trials we're proposing now, and that may be our way to showing real benefits of early PN and early EN meaningfully in the future, because we'll actually not be causing harm of over and under feeding in the middle of the trial, right? How many, I mean, how many trials in that full feeding group were over or under feeding throughout the stay and were causing harm perhaps in the experimental group as much as they were in the control group who are usually trophic feds and trophically fed and markedly underfed. And so yeah. then it's impossible to difference. Okay. And uh, if we could, I know I've picked your brain quite a bit and I appreciate that. And I think all the listeners always appreciate your insight, but the, the truth of it and the reality of it is the rollout of this kind of device is not going to reach every ICU all over the world. So the vast majority of the listeners, what can you leave them with in terms of insights for, you know, the predictive is probably all we have, or we've got uh, the Penn State, Harris Benedict, what would you leave us with that for, for those that can't access this kind of uh, technology for now? Yeah, you know, so in, in our research, RD, Laura and Hillary's 
data that we're, we're finishing up, like we're working on it just yesterday. Um, the equation that performs the best, and you've heard me say it before probably, is the Penn State equation. So again, that's for intubated patients, but um, the Penn State equation seems to perform the best. So if you're gonna pick one, use that. The thing it misses, our data would say, is it doesn't pick up the later hypermetabolism in weeks two through seven. So I would try to make some accounting of somewhere between five and seven kcals per kilo more in those later phases, you know, after week after week two, especially post intubation. So in weeks three through seven, you know, you probably need to add five to seven, and when they're sicker or febrile persistently, a little more, maybe ten or twelve, to especially a younger person. If they're over seventy, probably less, but especially a younger person. Um, you need to add some even to the Penn State equation because that's where the Penn State equation fails. The Penn State equation is not a, a great, uh, it doesn't it doesn't account for physiology changes over time. And I mean, none of them can, they're not built for that. And so, you know, Harris Benedict and MSJ and, and the Aspen numbers do poorly because they're fixed numbers that don't account for, for any change in, in status of the patient. Penn State seems to perform better, but again, it doesn't pick up the later hypermetabolism in COVID patients at least, and I bet it doesn't do it in other patients as well. And so I think that would be my advice is, you know, in the intubated patient, use that. And then, you know, late when they're not intubated anymore, it gets tricky. And I'm hoping we'll have data to share with you soon with what to do with the later patients as we gather more data that may help you make estimations. But, but again, I can tell you that they're gonna, they're gonna need more to recover muscle masses and get more active. So I think the, the, the figure one in the paper that you know, we're talking about in this podcast, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm happy to share that with any of you um, full checks PDF if you'd like, um, is got some good suggestions that again, to the best of our knowledge, which I will freely admit is a limited knowledge, we still haven't, you know, gotten to the pinnacle of, of knowledge and feeding outside the ICU, but is to the best of our estimations, the thing we think will help the most. And, and what's your thoughts on that magic number of 25 and having uh, some trials show they, it's pretty close to 100% at times. Is that too much of a generalization? I think in the first 25, yeah. I, I would say in the first week, 20 to 20, 70% of 20 to 25 for the first three to five days, makes a lot of sense. And then somewhere from 20 to 25 for the next three days, probably up to day, you know, eight, seven, eight, um, is probably pretty close. I mean, I can tell you in the first week in the non-obese COVID patient, the data that we are gonna publish for the moment shows 25 kcals per kilo being what their measured resting unit expenditure was in that first week. Okay. And the non-obese patient. In the obese patient, it was 19 on actual. So higher than you think, higher than the Aspen 11 to 14. But again, you should be feeding 70% of that measured number. So 70% of 25 or 70% of 19, probably for the first three to five. Now it gets trickier. It gets trickier if the patient has severe malnutrition. We don't know what to do with that patient who has no substrate to give, right? We're doing this all based on the fact that the patient's making their own non-protein substrate calories. The non-protein calories are being generated by muscle breakdown. And, and substrate breakdown. And so the body's providing some amount of its own endogenous calories. And that's why we say feed 50 to 70%. If you're malnourished severely and you can't do that, maybe you can't do that. 
And maybe that group in our top-up data would hint at this, and, 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 I, and I hope someday we get back to that, but our top-up trial data would hint that maybe those patients need to be closer to 80 or 90 or even 100% after day three pretty quickly because they don't have the substrate to give. That that's, that's the hypothesis on my part. Okay, okay. So I, I always appreciate you making the time for, for the podcast. Uh, I think you're one of the nutrition heroes. And no, you've got a huge following on social media and all of the, the different handles. So we appreciate you being on the show and thanks for all of the research. I think I know I've said it before, but you create, you take research and you make practical guidelines for us on you know an everyday practice that we can implement. So thank you from my side and uh, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. And 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 I mean I have to say, I'm I mean, you guys are the real heroes, and, and I've said it before, you know, the RDs are, are really the ones out there saving lives and changing lives every day. And and, um, you know, RD saved my life when I was a kid and they continue when I get sick now, I, I'm, they're essential to my survival and my recovery. And so all of you, I think, should realize um, what an amazing contribution you make. You are the only champions for the essential nutritional care these patients demand and have to have for them to recover and get their lives back and be survivors, not victims. And so um, I know some days it's hard and, and you take a lot of abuse and, and, and <laughs> positions that, that is not deserved and, and they don't understand the, the magnitude of the wisdom you bring, but be persistent because we're going to continue to publish data and give you the tools like this device and, and, and give you evidence and science and, and data to try to make this a much easier road for you to, you to go. But the only way that data and these opportunities are going to get to your patients is through you. So um, stay strong. Thanks for joining on this episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu. Please like, share, and subscribe.